Lily Flag Signal, Episode 23, The All Request Line. Hello there, you've reached the Lily Flag Signal All Request Line. No local history question too big or too small for consideration. Please leave a message and I'll get back to you after some researching. Back in Season 2, I did a listener request episode called You Asked For This, where I answered user-submitted questions about local history, and I've gotten enough questions this season to do another request episode. This whole podcast thing started out as me doing research dives into topics I personally wanted to learn more about, particularly things I'd heard growing up in the Huntsville area, and it's really cool to have reached the point that I'm getting to look into other people's history topics of interests too. These questions I'll be talking about today were sent in by listeners on Instagram. The show is at Lily Flag Podcast there and on Facebook if you want to give it a follow, as well as the lovely patrons on Patreon. You can support the show over there on Patreon at patreon.com slash lilyflagpodcast also. The submissions ranged from architecture to candy shops to my favorite brewery, so there's a great range. Also, I didn't get food poisoning while researching this one, unlike when I tried watercress for the first time in the original listener request episode, so that's nice. Flag Signal, the Huntsville, Alabama history podcast, where today I'm a historian for hire. I'll be going through the submissions one by one, first listing the question and then getting into my answer. To differentiate between topics, I'm going to have a little sound effect between each question and answer. So without further ado, let's begin. Why are there frogs on the Terry Hutchins building? From the moment I first noticed them, I've been a big fan of the secret frogs on the Terry Hutchins building downtown. It's on the northwest corner of the intersection of Clinton and Jefferson, and many people know it as the home of Coffee Clotch Coffee Shop since they've occupied the first floor of the building for over 40 years now. To clear up some potential confusion, the Terry Hutchins building is the seven-story tall one, and across the street from it on Clinton is the two-story W.T. Hutchins building. These aren't the same. The W.T. Hutchins building, the smaller one, was built between 1916 and 1921, and then the Terry Hutchins building, the big frog one, was finished in 1925. Amongst the documentation on the Terry Hutchins building, I found an article by local architect and historian Harvey Jones that nicely describes the frog situation. Quote, The top floor windowsills of this commercial gothic office building have gargoyles of bright green glazed terracotta frogs, each about 12 inches tall. A delightful example of humor and fun in architecture, as was true of their original use in Romanesque and Gothic structures of medieval Europe. End quote. And it's true. If you find yourself in the Clinton and Jefferson intersection and look up at the seventh floor, you can make out little green blobs that, depending on the quality of your eyesight or glasses, are indeed frogs. There's a parking deck caddy corner from the Terry Hutchins building that offers a better, higher-up view as well. Gargoyles on buildings historically served as like a drain spout, as a way to divert rainwater away from the building structure, though I can't tell if the green frogs are actually designed to pour rainwater out of their mouths. My favorite, more modern example of this is in Washington, D.C. at the National Cathedral. They have a lot of grotesques, which are decorative little carved creatures, and one of these is actually shaped like Darth Vader. And some of these grotesques have openings for water to pour out of them from the gutter system, making them gargoyles. Not all grotesques are gargoyles, but all gargoyles are grotesques, apparently. The National Cathedral has over a hundred of these gargoyles, some of which include a skeleton of a horse's face, a crooked politician, and my favorite, a duck with teeth with a man inside its mouth holding a camera. I mention this to say that funky gargoyles and grotesques outside of the usual realm of creepy winged monsters do in fact exist, 
but I don't know exactly why frogs were chosen for the building in Huntsville. I also looked in the architecture firm responsible for the building, BF Hunt of Chattanooga, and found some info on them, including legal documents from when the firm dissolved, but no notes from them either on anyone commenting on the presence of the frogs or the reason for their addition specifically. In 2017, I bought a green metal frog decoration for my porch at the local drugstore. It was marketed as, quote, whimsical frog, five dollars, end quote, and to this day I keep that little frog on display. The Terry Hutchins building was pricier than that, with construction costs over $150,000 in 1925 money, but they seem to have gotten their own little whimsical frogs as well. What's up with the preserved section of the sidewalk on the downtown square? If you've not noticed, on the east side of the courthouse square, that's the one that was formerly listed as cheap side on maps 100 years ago, there's a section of the sidewalk with a hole cut into it and plexiglass over the top to allow passersby to see a few square feet of what's below our modern paved sidewalk. If you look into the hole, you'll see that about a foot under the sidewalk is a brick herringbone patterned walkway. This was the previous sidewalk for downtown, and the depth difference gives you an idea of how much the square is literally built up. The city paved over these rather than ripping out the old bricks first. The downtown streets were actually paved with brick until the 1940s, when the Works Progress Administration teams began paving them with concrete and then later asphalt. There's been a viewing section of the old bricks since the mid-1970s, but it got revamped in conjunction with the state's bicentennial in 2019 by a group of local historians as the old exhibit setup was deteriorating. Those bricks, which were installed directly on the ground below, by the way, aren't the only thing that they paved directly over. The tracks used by both the city's electric streetcar system, which was discontinued in 1931, and the Montesano Railroad in the late 1800s were at least partially paved over. This means that utility work involving tearing up part of the roads will sometimes result in crews finding old pieces of track. This finding of old tracks has happened multiple times in recent memory, including on Holmes Avenue about two years ago in 2021. A few blocks east of that, and two years prior, in 2019, another crew doing road work actually uncovered some of the bricks used in paving that part of the road in what's now the Old Town Historic District. Another thing that was often paved over rather than replaced were the old pipes for the waterworks, including the original hollowed-out wooden logs from the original system, meaning utilities workers have in fact dug up nearly 200-year-old pipes. This stuff is everywhere, and I hope next time you're downtown that you remember history is literally right beneath your feet. Why haven't you talked about Tallulah Bankhead? A fair question, as the woman billed as, quote, Alabama's best-known actress, end quote, was in fact born on Huntsville's downtown square, darling. Her career spanned theater, movies, television, and radio, all while amassing a long list of hysterical quotes and controversial-at-the-time life choices. Though Tallulah is an absolutely fascinating person, both for her career as well as her personal life, she spent very little time in Huntsville, and zero of the things she's known for occurred here. Like, she didn't even grow up in Huntsville, since she was sent to Jasper to live with family, and then later sent to private school out of state. I personally really enjoyed Tallulah as an actress and as a golden age movie star in general. She has some great quotes, as I mentioned, and Hitchcock's Lifeboat, in which she starred, is a fun watch. But seeing as how her only connection to Huntsville was living here a very short time at the beginning of her life, I can't really justify doing a full episode on her. I can't not mention her father here, though. Her dad was William Bankhead, who I think I name-dropped in the 1901 Walking Tour episode. He was Huntsville's city attorney, then a state-level representative, and then eventually representative for Alabama on the federal level, where he became our first and to date only Speaker of the House. However, he was also not really a Huntsvillian for very long, as he was here less than a decade total with four of those years, 1898 to 1902, being his tenure as city attorney. 
The road leading up to the west side of Montesano Mountain is named Bankhead Parkway in his honor, not his daughter's, as is Bankhead National Forest and numerous other locations in the state. So, in short, father and daughter are both interesting and memorable, but they're not quite Huntsville-specific enough. And now we've got a question about Church of the Nativity. Sort of. I did a feature on this church back in Season 1. That episode was called Spires, Bells, and No Horses, if you want to check it out. However, as I was focusing on the history of that building, its architecture, and the story of how the original church was actually sold and moved brick by brick across downtown, I didn't mention the sidewalk out front. Adjacent to the city sidewalk in front of the church is a cement rectangle in the ground with, quote, E. Dentler, 1872, end quote, written in it. I've honestly walked past this thousands of times, and I never thought much about what it was. A grave marker for somebody buried beneath the sidewalk? A dedication plaque of sorts? I, I noted it in my head as probably a memorial of some sort, but never actually looked into it until I received a message asking about it. So here's the deal. E. Dentler is Ernest Dentler, and in 1871, the year before the date that's carved into the cement, he purchased the land where the plaque is now and had a building constructed there. It actually blocked the side windows of the building to its right, 208 Eustis, which still stands today. In 1884, you can find a note in the Huntsville Gazette by Ernest Dentler advertising his shop on Eustis, saying, quote, Ice cream with strawberries, raspberries, and sherbet at all hours in my rooms on Eustis Street. Family supplied, suppliers and picnics furnished on short notice, delivered at residences free. Good supply of fresh lemons, oranges, bananas, etc. on hand, end quote. Free deliveries of ice cream in the days before refrigeration? I'd put a stone plaque up to the guy, too. Ernest Dentler passed away from complications due to diabetes in 1888. I wondered for a while if the stone plaque on the sidewalk was his grave, but good news, it is not. Dentler is interred in Maple Hill Cemetery. The building stood for a few more decades, with it still being referenced as the Dentler Building, even when it was in use by the neighboring Church of the Nativity. The old shop was eventually torn down and replaced by the church. The current building, called Ridley Hall, was completed in 1952. The cement with his name and the date of his confectionery shop's opening are all that remain of Ernest Dentler's building now. Moving up Eustis Avenue from the Dentler sign, I got one of my all-time favorite messages recently from a friend of mine, hey Katie, and it went approximately as follows, quote, hey, do you know what Green Bus used to be, end quote. Green Bus Brewing slash Bus Stop Coffee, they're the same building, is one of my favorite places in town. When I was in grad school with no home internet, I'd take my online tests in the back corner of the bar, and the majority of the friends I've made in my adult life were other regulars at bus. I just call it bus. Also, I should add that no one is paying me to say this. This is one of my favorite questions to get because it requires one of my favorite kinds of research, staring at old maps. If you're not familiar with Sanborn maps, they were made for fire insurance purposes to track where in town had running water, what structures were made of flammable materials like wood, and also what businesses occupied what locations. That last bit is what's most important to today's question, and it allows me to talk through a bit of my location research here on the show. But first, there are not one but two plaques on the outside of Green Bus about the building's origins, so I'll start there. The top one of these two plaques was placed by the National Society of Colonial Dames and reads, quote, James Gillespie Burney. This site was briefly owned in 1829 by attorney and leader James G. Burney, who was elected mayor of Huntsville on July 14th of that same year. He served as agent of the American Colonialization Society in Alabama before moving to Kentucky. After achieving national fame as an outspoken abolitionist, he ran for president of the United States on the Liberty Party ticket for both 1840 and 1844, end quote. 
If you're wondering, William Henry Harrison won that 1840 election and died like a month into office. And then in 1844, James K. Polk won. That's interesting and all, but it's not until a few decades later that the present building was constructed. That's where plaque number two from the Huntsville chapter of the Daughters of the American Revolution comes in. Quote, in June 1866, Kate L. Kaufman signed a construction contract for this building, which was utilized by her family as a confectionery shop. The Kaufmans sold this property in 1877, end quote. Something that Plaque leaves out is that during its tenure as a Kaufman-owned building, this was more than just a confectionery. In fact, it was used and advertised primarily as a saloon for many of these years, starting in September 1873. Quote, P.J. Kaufman's Grand Billiard Saloon, Cincinnati Lager Beer, Choice Cigars, Lunch Served to Order by Attentive Waiters. Our confectionery will be continued, as heretofore, to the satisfaction of my customers. Thanking the public for past patronage, yours respectfully, P.J. Kaufman, end quote. Lunch, beer, cigars, and candy. Okay. Also, I need to note that this particular advertisement had eight different font styles in it. From there, I can work forward through the Sanborn maps to see some of the different uses for the building, which is now 206 Eustis Street, throughout the years. I have eight Sanborn maps to go off of, and the building's listed use each year is as follows. In 1884, it was of course listed as a saloon. In 1888, it was vacant. In 1894, a grocer. In 1898, still a grocer. In 1901, you're never going to believe this, but it was a grocer. In 1908, cotton offices. 1913, offices again. In 1921, sewing machines. In the last century, the building has also been a lawyer's office. There's a photo of one of the attorneys still on display at the brewery. A weird thing you may encounter when trying to track a building over the decades is that over time, a lot of the road names and numbers actually changed. For example, Green Bus is currently 206 Eustis, one of the few addresses I have memorized outside of those of myself and my loved ones, but in the 1913 Sanborn map, it's listed as 104. In the 1921 map, it's 205. The numbers changed completely, and the odds and evens swap sides of the street twice, so that's something to look out for when you're looking into the previous uses of downtown buildings. A few years ago, I helped the employees reassemble a broken glass address sign found in the basement of Green Bus, and it said 206 Eustis, the current address, which helped in dating the piece. Like I said earlier, there's history under our feet all the time. Those are all the questions I could get to today. If yours wasn't included, and there were a few of those for sure, it's because I either haven't gotten a full answer yet, or because it's spun off into its own episode. If you want to support the show and get the most behind-the-scenes info and fun facts, the podcast has a Patreon where you can join starting at $5 a month, that's the cost of one whimsical frog porch decoration, at patreon.com slash lilyflagpodcast. It's patreon.com slash l-i-l-y-f-l-a-g-g podcast, two g's and flag, and you can get a shout out like Allison, Emily, Eric, Laura, Jennifer, William, and other listeners to whom I'm incredibly grateful. You can also follow the show on social media at Lily Flag Podcast, again with two G's and flag, on Facebook and Instagram both. I post photos to go along with the weekly episode topic, as well as local history events, fun findings during research trips, and the occasional meme or cat photo. Lastly, transcripts for all episodes are available on the show's website, lilyflagpodcast.wordpress.com, where you can also view the citations for each script and links to learn more. That's all for this week. Until next time, stay whimsical, cite your sources, and I'll talk to you soon. What's up with the preserved? With the city paving over the old to make way through the new...
The city has been paving over the old to make the new rather than ripping out the... Uh, the and then eventually a representative for Alabama on the federal level, le- le- leveler, 